All right, good morning. Man, it's nice to be out of those robes for a minute. I I can't imagine people doing that all the time. Uh, Children, kids, uh, you can be dismissed to children's sermon time. So Miss Margie is right there in the back, or you can follow Miss Holly over here as well. Um, Or you can stay. I think it's great having you all just hang out and hear God's word uh, preached. Um, It's good to be with you all, kiddos. Really nice work. Thank you. We did that in a very short time, putting all of that together. Uh, So I really appreciate you doing that. And students... Whether you're helping on a team or playing music or uh, helping to just make all this happen, thank you for doing that. I know it's not always the most fun thing to do to help corral the kids, but uh, I think it turned out pretty good. So thanks for doing all of that. If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Matt. I serve as one of the pastors here at Elmwood. Let me invite you to actually open up a Bible to the book of Ruth this morning. We're going to be considering where Ruth fits into Matthew's genealogy, but we're going to be going through the entire book of Ruth kind of in summation, and I'm going to be pointing a few things out. So it is certainly worth it uh, for you to have the text in front of you. But let's pray, and uh, then we will dive into this text together. So, Lord, we desire to hear from you this morning. We desire to be encouraged in the ways that you want to encourage us. And Lord, we we desire to be convicted in the ways that you uh, desire to convict our hearts. Lord, in all of this, would you draw us to yourself? Would you stir in us an affection for you? Would you help us to see Jesus more clearly in light of Ruth's story this morning? Lord, please glorify yourself in this time. Please do your will among us on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are uh, well into football season by this point. And I don't know how many of you uh, are into football or are football fans, but let me tell you, uh, I am not. It is not uh, one of my favorite sports. I know some of you might have just instantly written me off, but just just hear me out. There were moments in my life where I really enjoyed football. There was actually a season uh, in my life where I wanted to play football, and I tried to tell my dad, and he said that was not a good idea for me. Because at that point, I was probably about four foot five and 110 pounds soaking wet. And so he, he did not think that was a good idea. I think that he was probably right. But I, you know, I, I was a little upset about it at the time. But there are people in my life that are really, really into the football season. They're, they, they're all geared up for it. They have their, their fantasy teams. They're, they're all about it. But let me just say this as a side note. For those of you who come to me before the service, and this, if you ask if this really happens, this really happens, that come to me and say, you know, can we make the sermon a little snappy because we got to get to the football game afterwards? Just know you might as well be asking me to go watch the curling game after the service today, okay? And if it's not, you know, curling, then let, if you're into that, then, you know, just fill that in with some other sport that I'm not that interested in. So it doesn't really have a lot of weight to me, but the reality is, is I know many people are into football, and, and one of those people is my dad. And my dad is a, a huge football fan. He loves watching it. He's got his fantasy league with, with his buddies. He, he's just all about it. I know that when they do their draft every year, he takes uh, his easel and he, he puts like those giant post-it notes, if you know those post-it notes. He puts them up there. He's got all of his players laid out. He is super planned out. And I actually really admire him for all the prep that he puts into that. And one of the channels that he ascribes to consistently is the NFL Network. So I don't know if you're into football. Some of you might have the NFL Network. And on the NFL NFL Network is this thing called uh, the Red Zone. 
And if you don't know what the red zone is, that's like the last 20 yards before the end zone where people are going to score a touchdown. And on NFL Network, one of the things that they do is whenever a team gets within 20 yards of that end zone and they're about to score a touchdown, they'll quick switch over to that game so you can see it. So you can see the most exciting, highlighted part of the game. It's, this, it's just pretty much this functional highlight reel. Anytime a team is about to score, there's going to be something awesome happen, they go right to that. So you get the max excitement. And as we think about this idea of seeking the exciting moments or, or thinking about the highlight reel, I, I worry that sometimes we think about God's word in this way. Sometimes I, I, I think, you know, let me just say this. On one level, that's yes and amen. That, you know, God's word is a, a story about the highlights of God's work and his redemptive plan among his people. We see his miracles. We see his grace. We see his judgment poured out upon his enemies. But, but oftentimes, there, there's the reality where our lives do not reflect what we always see in Scripture. What happens to us when, when our lives don't feel like they're marked by seeing these miraculous things, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the, the pouring out of God's plagues? What happens when our lives feel ordinary? What happens when we have real challenges and we don't see God moving in the ways that we usually see him moving in Scripture? Now, let me say that while it's true that the Bible records these amazing situations in the history of God's people, there's also certain moments in the Bible that record more ordinary events, where we may not see God moving in the most extreme way, but he is still there subtly. And as we think about the story of Ruth, Ruth is one of those stories. So I'm excited to get into this with you. We've been in this sermon series uh, called The Mothers of Jesus, where we've been looking at the four women that are in Matthew's genealogy right before Jesus' birth and considering what their stories have to tell us about Jesus in, in Matthew's gospel. We've been asking, why are these women even in here? And what do they contribute to us when it comes to the story of Jesus? So as I said, we're looking at Ruth today. Now, as a side note, I know that genealogies are not the most exciting part of your scripture reading. They're not the most exciting part of mine as well. But I, I have this personal goal for us that when we get to the end of this sermon series, that you would realize that if we take the time to study these genealogies and really understand them, that they're actually powerful and they have a lot of meaning for us. And I believe that is certainly true as we look at Ruth and her story. Now, as we get into the story of Ruth, Ruth is, is what I would characterize as a little bit of, of an emotional roller coaster. You are going to the, to the very peak of elation all the way down to the, the depths of depression. It's a story that starts in severe tragedy and makes its way all the way to incredible restoration. And then there's a little bit of an unexpected plot twist at the end. But it's a story where we meet two widows who are struggling to survive. And through the faithfulness of one couple, we see that that goes a long way and that God accomplishes his purposes. Now, we can't read the entire story. Uh, you heard part of it read from Addie. Addie, thank you for reading that. Um, but we're going to take a step back and we're going to just summarize certain portions of the book of Ruth. And Ruth is kind of broken down a little bit like a play where there's four scenes in it. And the scenes kind of relate. I don't have time to, to work all of that out, but they relate in very specific ways. But we're going to break it down into four different scenes. So turn to Ruth chapter one with me, if you haven't done that. And we're going to call this scene number one, the introduction and tragedy. The introduction and tragedy. 
When we start the book of Ruth, it tells us, in the days when the judges ruled, pause. Okay, we cannot go any further into the story of Ruth until we take a moment to consider the, the depth of what's being communicated there. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the time of the judges was a really dark time for Israel. It was this time where they were consistently disobedient to God, and then God would give them over to their enemies, and then they would cry out to God for help, and then God would restore them through these people called judges, only to have Israel disobey again. And this vicious cycle, this this consistent downward spiral, happens again and again, almost an absurd amount of times. So as soon as we start the book of Ruth, and it says, this is happening during the time of the judges, when the judges ruled, that is a quick signal for us that this is not going to go well. But we we start the story and we meet two people, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. And they are from Bethlehem and there's a famine in Bethlehem. And so they go to Moab, which is uh, one of the enemy nations of Israel. And they go there to try and find food and make a life for themselves, which they do. And they take their sons with them. And when their sons are there, they actually end up marrying two Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth, Ruth being the the lady who uh, the book of Ruth is named after. However, very quickly, there is a downward turn, as we would expect. We find that Elimelech, the husband, and both of the sons die, leaving Ruth, Orpah, and Naomi, three women, vulnerable, left alone, trying to figure out what they're going to do. Thankfully, within a time frame, the the famine ends, and so they're going to go back to Bethlehem. But this is what Naomi says to her daughters-in-law. She says, you need to go back to your parents' house. And what she means by that is you need to go back to your parents because they're the ones who are going to set you up with new husbands. She says, I'm too old to be able to provide new sons for you who will end up being your husbands. You need someone who is going to make ends meet for you. So go back to your parents in your homeland and I will go back to Bethlehem. And Orpah says, cool. She says, fine. She takes off. But Naomi does something very different. She demonstrates this amazing faithfulness to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. It's, the, it's this amazing moment of not only allegiance of Ruth to Naomi, but of Ruth to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem and they're trying to figure out how they're gonna survive. And then we find ourselves in scene two. I call this a moment where there is some sort of hope. So the ladies are in Bethlehem. They're trying to figure out how they're going to get food. So Naomi tells Ruth, she says, go and glean in the fields. Go and glean in the fields. So you would go to the field and what the farmers were commanded to do in Israel is leave some food left over so that the the people that were down and out could go and collect that food and actually have some provisions. So that's exactly what Ruth does. She goes to the field and, and she starts collecting this food and she meets this man named Boaz. And Boaz is actually the owner of the field, and he goes above and beyond in showing her kindness. He actually makes sure that she is protected, makes sure she has enough food, and he even gives her extra food to take back to her mother-in-law. And so Ruth brings all this back, and Naomi's like, where did this come from? Like, where is all this food coming from? And and Ruth says, this guy, Boaz, he, he gave me all this food. And Naomi's elated because she says, that man is a guardian redeemer of our family. Now let's pause for a second. What is a guardian redeemer? Some of your translations might put kinsman redeemer. 
Now, a guardian redeemer was an extended family member that was responsible for protecting the interests of other family members. And this would happen in different ways. So sometimes if a family member couldn't afford to pay for their land or to keep it, then the guardian redeemer would come alongside and pay for it. Or if there was a family member who was sold into slavery that couldn't get out of slavery, the guardian redeemer would pay to get them out of slavery. But in the case of the story of Ruth, it's a little bit more nuanced to the point where if there was a husband who died and he didn't have any heir to receive his inheritance, then the guardian redeemer would marry the widow in order to provide an heir so that that deceased husband's name could be carried forward. So that name and that family could continue to be honored. And that is exactly what Boaz is to Ruth and Naomi. And so it means that amidst all of this tragedy, there might be a glimmer of hope if Boaz will buy Ruth's land and marry Ruth. And that's when we get into Scene three, the big ask. And so Naomi tells Ruth, dress in clothes that signal to Boaz that you are available, that you're no longer mourning, but that you're looking for a husband. And meet him down at the threshing floor as he's doing his harvesting work. And so she does that, and she goes to Boaz, and she says, cover me with the corners of your garment, which is kind of an expression of saying, will you please marry me? And Boaz says, yes, I will marry you, Ruth, but there is a guardian redeemer who is closer to your family than I am, meaning he has the right to marry you before I do. So I need to ask him first. Ruth says, fine. She goes back to Naomi and Naomi says, wait, he's going to get all this sorted out, which leads us to the final scene, the moment of truth in the story of Ruth. Boaz goes to the town gate. This is the place where legal matters were settled. And he meets the other guardian redeemer and he explains the situation. He says, Ruth, uh, excuse me, Naomi is selling this land. Will you buy her land? And he says, sure. I'll, I'll take that land off of her hands. And then second, Bo, uh, Boaz adds this, but if you do that, you have to marry Ruth the Moabite as well. And he says, whoa, I, I can't marry her. I can't endanger my estate. So what does he mean by that? What he means is he's worried that if he has a son with Ruth, he's gonna have to share his family's inheritance with her and with him. And if that son is actually his only heir, then all of his stuff is going to go to this other family. He's not willing to to part with his stuff in order to honor his family. He would rather make sure that his inheritance maintains intact. And this is good news for Boaz because he wants to marry Ruth. So he says, great. And so we find in chapter four that the story of Ruth ends with this amazing restoration where we started with famine and death and we end with Boaz marrying Ruth and they have a son named Obed. Obed, And then there's a quick plot twist in like the last 10 verses where it says this, that child Obed was the grandfather of King David, one of the most beloved kings in all of Israel's history. That's the story of Ruth, this huge roller coaster all the way to the depths and all the way brought up leading us to King David. Are you all tracking with me? I know that was a lot of content to sort through, but there's a point to this. I want to ask you this question. As I told that story, was there anything interesting that you noticed about the way that I told it? If you were listening carefully, you would have noticed that I said almost nothing about God being involved in that story at all. And that is not just the way that I told it, that's actually the way that the text is written. When you read the book of Ruth, there's actually only two times, two verses in four chapters where it says God was directly involved in anything at all. 
And that's kind of strange, right? We're reading the Bible. It's, a, you know, it's this grand narrative story about God's work among his people. We would expect to see what God is up to. But if we look very carefully at the text, and what I want to highlight a few parts for you this morning, is that we find that the author makes it very clear that even though God is not mentioned directly, he is thoroughly involved and integrated in everything that is going on with Ruth and her family. Let me give you some examples of that. So when we start in chapter 1, we see that Ruth and Naomi come back at the end of chapter 1, and it's the barley harvest. It just so happens that when they're in most need, they come back to Bethlehem, and is the time when people are harvesting food. And then in chapter 2, Ruth goes to some random field, and it just so happens that this guy Boaz is in the field. And so she meets him. And then she goes back to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and it just so happens that that guy, Boaz, is an extended family member who can actually bring honor to their name and redeem their family. And then when Boaz goes to sort out in the beginning of chapter 4 whether this other guardian redeemer is going to marry Ruth or not, it just so happens that he's walking by the town gate so he can actually sort out all of those circumstances. If we look very carefully at the text, we find that the author makes it clear that God is very, very present. He's doing what we call theological signaling. He's speaking to us in an under-the-radar way that God is moving even when we don't directly recognize it. Even when he is not parting the Red Sea, even when he is not sending plagues, even when he is not raising people from the dead, he is still doing something, and the story of Ruth of evidence of that is evidence of that. It's evidence that God is still at work even in the hardest moments throughout our lives. Now, I don't know what you're going through, but I've never met anybody who's not facing some significant challenge. We were just praying about some of the significant challenges people in our congregation are facing. So maybe for you, it's a relational challenge where you're clashing with someone, trying to iron things out, or it's a health issue with COVID or something else where you feel like your body is just wasting away. Maybe you're exhausted at work. I've been talking to a good amount of people who are just worn out at the end of the year trying to get everything sorted out at their jobs before they start the new year. Or maybe you're at school, you're a student, you're overwhelmed, you feel like your school is purposeless or meaningless, or maybe you're just bored. Maybe you're simply bored and you are trying to find contentment. But the reality is, is that Ruth reminds us is that even when things don't look like they could possibly turn out for good, there is still a reason to hope. Because think about this with me. Are we to think that Naomi ever expected for it to play out this way? Are we to think Naomi would have ever expected when she went to Bethlehem that her husband's name would be redeemed and that she would have an heir? Are we to believe that, that Ruth believed when she clung to Naomi and went back to a foreign land that she would ever have a husband again? Are we to believe that the ancient Israelites who were reading this later on, when they start this story, that they see that Ruth the Moabite, the foreign woman, is going to end up being the great-grandmother of their most beloved king? No, of, of, of course not. They would not have expected this or anticipated things playing out in this way. And that is the point of Ruth. That is exactly the point of Ruth. That God's ability to bring about his purposes in our lives is not limited by our expectations or our understanding of what he's doing. I want to say that one more time. God's ability to bring about his purposes in our lives is not limited by our expectations or our understanding of what he's up to. And this is good news for us. Because I imagine that most of us in this room, myself included, 
don't feel like our lives are constantly overflowing with these profound experiences and miracles of God. And I imagine that most of you, like me, have things that are going on in your lives that you have no idea what God is up to. And you're just trying to figure out how you're going to make it to the next day or the next week while trying to make it through certain circumstances. But here's what Ruth reminds us of. That that these small acts of faithfulness that we take amidst those challenging circumstances, they matter. They matter to God. They are means by which God can accomplish his purposes. And so we are called to humbly walk in them. But let's transition now for a moment from talking about, you know, Ruth in simply the story of Ruth in and of itself, which has value, and let's consider where Ruth fits into the story of Jesus. Because that's what we're here for, right? We're, we're considering how Ruth's story points us to Jesus in Matthew's genealogy. So just, we'll just ask a very simple question. Why does Matthew include Ruth in Jesus' genealogy? Why is Ruth in there? Let me clarify what I mean by that. Ruth is certainly included, certainly partially because she's in the the family line of Jesus. That's a true answer. That is a correct answer. But I think that is a surface level answer. I think there's a, a deeper answer to be had than that. Because here's the thing. There are people that Matthew does not include in Jesus' family tree that are actually part of his family line. There are people in Jesus' family tree that Matthew chooses not to include. And if you want evidence of that, go look at the book of Luke and compare Matthew and Luke's genealogies. They overlap at some parts, but they have different people that they chose to include and exclude. And so you would imagine they're doing that for a reason. And for an ancient person reading Matthew's genealogy, they are not like us. They do not glance over the genealogies like we often have a habit of doing, but they would have known all of these stories, the story of Ruth that we just talked about. And so when they get to that name Ruth in Matthew's genealogy, it is just backloaded by all of that story and all of what's going on. You see, Ruth's story, we'll say it like this, Ruth's story would have somehow prepared an ancient reader for what they were about to hear about Jesus. And so the question is, Why does Matthew choose to specifically include Ruth? How does her story prepare us for Jesus' story, specifically his birth? And here's what I think the answer is. I think that Matthew includes Ruth in Jesus' genealogy because Ruth's story shows us that even in the face of the ordinary and even in the face of the tragic, God is able to bring about redemption and restoration. Even in the face of the ordinary and in the tragic, God is able to bring about redemption and restoration. Just like the story of Ruth, the the story of Jesus is not a fairy tale, right? Jesus is not born into a life of luxury. He doesn't go on living this life of leisure and adventure only to marry the princess and live happily ever after. That is not the story of Jesus by far. The story of Jesus' birth is one of scandal, where Joseph thinks about divorcing Mary because he doesn't know that the child that's inside her is from the Spirit of God. It's a story where the creator himself takes on flesh and has to sleep among the filth of the animals that he had created. It's a story where Mary and Joseph, they need to leave the country because there's this power-hungry king that Rome had put into power and he doesn't want to lose his seat. And so he goes around trying to kill all of the children that would be around Jesus' age in his city. It is a disaster on the surface. It is enormously tragic. It is just like the beginning of the book of Ruth. You're like, how could any good ever come out of this? And here's the thing. As the story continues and we track through the life of Jesus, it doesn't get any more glamorous. 
The gospel goes on to tell us that as Jesus grows up, even before he was to begin his ministry, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near, he had to go into the wilderness and almost starve to death and overcome temptation on our behalf before he could go around doing miracles. And he's going around doing miracles and these great works and healing people and exorcisms and serving those around him. And at the same time, he's got to juggle all of these people over here who don't approve of him and his vision for the kingdom. And they, want, they would rather see him dead than that vision actually take hold. And then near the end of the gospel, what do we find? That these people actually get their way and they hang him on wood and they bury him behind a rock. Like that's the majority of the gospel story. That is a significant portion of it. If we're looking for someone to identify with us when we're struggling and when we're feeling like our lives are not flashy, we really do not have to go any farther than Jesus and his family. But in all of this, we cannot forget the story of Ruth, where the famine results in the family leaving their town. During a time, the judges, where Israel wanted a king, where the husband and both sons die, where Ruth and Naomi are trying to figure out how they're going to make ends meet, we must not forget that even in that tragedy, God worked to bring about a great king, King David. And with that in mind, as we read Matthew's gospel account, we should already be preloaded with Ruth's story as we see her name in that genealogy. And we should be reminded of God's faithfulness to Ruth and her family so that even as we read about the scandalous birth of Jesus and the less than ideal circumstances of his early life and then eventually his tragic and brutal crucifixion, we should take heart that just because things look tragic, that doesn't mean that God is not at work and it doesn't mean that he is not orchestrating redemption through it. And as we consider the good news of the gospel this morning, we find that's exactly what God was doing. Because it was through that scandalous birth that the creator was taking on flesh and coming into the world. And it was through the temptations and daily grueling life that Jesus lived that he was overcoming and persevering for us, living that perfect life for us. And even amidst the tragedy of the cross, we see that Jesus was dying in our place. Because we are the ones who deserve to be up there for sinning and rebelling against God. And it's on the cross in what appeared to be the most hopeless situation imaginable that God was actually orchestrating the thing that we needed the very most, restoration to him. And as a result of that, we find restoration to one another. And as Christ rises from the dead three days later in the resurrection, we get clarity on what God was up to, seeing more of what he was doing, seeing that because of Christ's resurrection, we can have confidence that, that not even death can put out the hope of God's people. Even when it doesn't look like it, God was still at work in the story of Jesus in ways that we would not have understood had we been there ourselves. So friends, that is the beauty of the story of Ruth being included in Jesus' genealogy. The story of Ruth gives us a really clear picture of how little acts of faithfulness by Boaz and Ruth, little acts of kindness and faithfulness towards one another, ends up with God providing a king for his people, King David. And when we read Matthew's genealogy, Ruth, Ruth's name should remind us of God's faithfulness. So that as we continue to hear about the birth of Jesus, where two people, Mary and Joseph, are forced to show little acts of kindness towards one another so that they can preserve the life of this little baby that they had, we find it was through those circumstances that God was providing a king for all of us. In Ruth, God was working to bring about a great king for Israel, King David, 
But in the gospel story, we see that God had given us the great King Jesus, the son of David. That's where these two stories connect. So how do we respond to Christ in light of Ruth's story? As we move away from this, how, what should we be taking away? I think it's twofold. One is something we recognize and one is something that we do. The first thing is that we recognize God's faithfulness is not bound to our ability to recognize his faithfulness. God's faithfulness is not bound to our ability to recognize his faithfulness. By definition, Jesus' followers should be some of the most hopeful people around because our book, God's word, the Holy Scriptures tell us that our immediate circumstances are not always a clear indicator of what God is up to. He might be doing something that we do not see. Case in point, the story of Ruth and Jesus' life and ministry. The reality is that we simply do not always have the ability to discern what God is up to until he makes it clear to us. And so we need to keep that in mind at all times, that just because it doesn't look like God is doing something, it doesn't mean he's not being faithful. And just because we don't see what God is doing, that doesn't mean that we have an excuse not to be faithful. God is always faithful. Therefore, we should always seek to be faithful, even when we don't see what he's doing. And that leads me to what we should do in response to this. We demonstrate faithfulness to God here before looking for him over there. I'm gonna say that one more time. We are called to demonstrate faithfulness to God here before we go looking for him over there. I think it's easy for us, and I I certainly fall into this camp, to buy into this idea that when God is moving, we will always know it. It's easy for us to buy into this idea that when God moves, it's something that's going to really make an impact on us. It's something that's going to stand out in our lives. But let's think about the history of God's people. Let's think about the thousands of years that go by in the history of God's people in the scriptures where God did what we would call the ordinary. And he carried along his salvation plans and his redemptive purposes through the ordinary. And let's think about the 2,000 years of church history after the New Testament was written and all of the ordinary obedience that people demonstrated. What we actually see when we consider the history of God's people as a whole is that God accomplished his work was through simple ordinary moments of obedience by his people. And it's only when we look back at those moments that we see the significance that they had. We do not immediately see it. The last thing that I want for us is to miss what God might be up to right here in our lives because we're looking so emphatically elsewhere for him to do something that might meet with our expectations. We do not always see what God is up to, and yet he is faithful. So what what is a way that we can focus right here and practice an awareness of of what God might be doing? I had a mentor that said we need to uh, hone in our, our spiritual antennas, our spiritual antennas, where we are constantly seeking to practice God's presence in our lives, even when our lives look ordinary, even when they're not exciting, even when they're really depressing. We should be having our antennas trying to sense out, okay, God, what might you be doing in this? And how might... I be faithful to you in the midst of that. We want to develop and practice a keen awareness of of God's providence in every single situation of our lives that we can participate with him in his good plans and purposes right here and right now as he takes us towards our assured future in Christ. Let's take a moment to just reflect on some of the stuff that we've heard and then we'll have a prayer of confession together.
Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by the things that we have done and by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we confess this morning as we come before you that it's so easy for us to have expectations of the ways that you might move or of the ways that we want to see you move in our lives. Lord, we confess that, that there's so many ways that, that we come to the table and, and just want to control you. We want to see you move in power in the same ways that we see you move in scripture. And oftentimes, Lord, that is not so. And Lord, we confess that in those moments, it's easy for us to lack contentment. We confess that in those moments, sometimes it's easy for us to take things into our own hands and seek to do things on our own and make things happen. And yet, Lord, we remember that just because we don't see your faithfulness, that doesn't mean that you are not faithful. Lord, please forgive us for the ways that we have not been mindful of that. Lord, please forgive us for the ways that our discontent or our expectations have worked their ways into our actions in sinful ways. Lord, would you help us to recognize that you are always at work, that you are involved in our lives in ways that we may not understand, and help us to practice a thankfulness for that. Help us to know that no matter what we face, no matter how boring, no matter how tragic, no matter how challenging or confusing, Lord, you have not abandoned your people. And the cross is our evidence of that, and the resurrection is our assurance of that. Lord, help us to look to Jesus. Help us to remember the story of Ruth and how she led us to Jesus and and the stuff that they went through and how it all turned out for the good of your people. Lord, help us to realize, please, that no matter what we're going through this morning, that you are working for our good, even when we don't understand how. Lord, in your mercy, would you forgive what we have been? Would you help us to amend what we are? And would you direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways? to the glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen.